Welcome to the DTB podcast for August 2014, volume 52, number 8. My name is David Fizakli, I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, I'm editor-in-chief. This month's editorial looks at the decision by NICE to extend the use of statins in primary prevention. In their latest guidance, they now recommend that people be considered for use of a statin if they are at a greater than 10-year, 10% risk of developing cardiovascular disease. And some of the issues we highlight are the problems that GPs and primary care physicians will encounter, particularly around describing to patients what it means to turn them from what was essentially a healthy person into a patient. What do you think are the, the, the key issues for you, James? I, th- I think this is a, a, a really interesting situation because we have clearly a body of evidence that suggests that if you give these drugs in a public health way, you can improve the health of the nation. So, you know, you can understand NICE's drive uh, to do this. But at the other end of the spectrum, you have this uh, subtle change in the relationship between people and their doctors and their health system um, as we convert them into patients. And that requires us to be able to uh, provide the right language for these people so they understand what we're trying to do and they can make an informed decision as to whether they want to take the statin or not. And I think that that can be quite a difficult conversation to have. So lots of issues about, firstly, do the people know that they've got to come for assessment anyway? So there's all sorts of issues about identifying the right people who could now be eligible for for statins. But once they do walk through the door, trying to describe in a way that's meaningful to them what the benefit of the statin will be and any potential harms is going to be challenging? Uh, absolutely. And of course, I think it's it's very often uh, a, a difficult, um, it's a difficult number game here. A lot of people, if you tell them they've got a, a 10% chance of, of having a heart attack or some cardiovascular event in the next 10 years, will actually jump up with joy and say, my goodness, that means I've got a 90% chance I won't have one. I thought it was much worse than that. So I think that for a lot of people, when we start to talk about these risks, they're going to they're going to have difficulty understanding what we're getting at. Um, and then, of course, there's been a lot of uh, tabloid uh, uh, press about statins about whether they actually are harmful so I think this is going to be a a difficult um, set of decisions and I think this is what we try and make out in the editorial the issue for us is that whilst medically you may make some decisions based on good evidence actually you've got to bring the culture of the population along with you if you're going to make those decisions work and I think at the moment the culture of our population is one that's going to find this a difficult thing to pick up and carry. So there's all sorts of problems about describing risks, benefits and outcomes and persuading people to take a drug for which they don't see perhaps a need at the moment or at least not feeling unwell. Are they likely to then stick with that treatment? Well this is of course and we know that the Uh, continued uh, concordance of patients given statins for primary prevention is very poor and I think that just highlights how a lot of patients don't yet understand or don't yet appreciate uh, why they're taking the tablets and I think um, I don't think any doctors will be trying to persuade anyone I hope they'll be working with their patients in a way to come to a decision that's right for that person in front of them. But, But clearly for uh, healthcare professionals for patients um, and really for the whole system we're going to need better tools and different language in order to persuade 
or at least have a reasonable discussion with people about what is right for them. That's right. And I think, as you say, one of the things that's also been hanging over all this is, is do we truly understand some of the issues around adverse events that occur um, and uh, when you have a big big population starting to take a drug of course very often the really rare things start to become uh, more obvious and come to the fore so we uh, perhaps haven't yet fully understood the implications on on the balance sheet yet with for the pros and cons of, of statins. So let's not underestimate the difficulties ahead. Precisely. Thank you. This month, our first main article is about Zoli, a new combined oral contraceptive, a drug that the manufacturer considers to be an option for women who would want to use hormones similar to her own and also makes some claims around the fact that it, it has a high level of contraceptive efficacy, produces shorter, lighter periods compared to gesperinone ethanol estradiol, otherwise known as Yasmin. So what's in this particular product, James? So Zoli is similar to Clara, another or combined oral contraceptive pill, having a estradiol compound structurally identical to endogenous estrogen. Unlike Clara, however, this is a monophasic pill. Uh, Clara, you'll remember, has uh, quadrophasic four different um, pill strengths, but uh, Zoli has just one. And like Clara, it actually has a prolonged active cycle, so it actually has... 24 days of active pills and then four uh, dummy pills for each cycle. And the progestogen in this one is nomogestrel acetate, which again is claimed to be more or similar to endogenous progesterone. But again, it's one that we're not that familiar with. Yes, in, in fact, I'm, I'm not aware it's being used in any other um, situation. So we, we don't has, have as yet very much data about it, particularly around things like um, venous thromboembolic events, um, which obviously are an issue in anyone taking the combined oral contraceptive pill. And as we highlight in the article, we review some of the evidence around um, risk of VTE and the effects of, of other pills. So it'd be interesting how people approach the use of this, particularly as there is no evidence or no data yet on the absolute risk of VTE with, with this combination. So what about efficacy? Did it work? Yes, I mean, it, it clearly works as a, a combined or contraceptive pill. Uh, there have been some research comparing it to Yasmin and uh, those comparisons, it holds its end up very well. It seems to be uh, better at controlling cycle um, cycle control both lightness and length of of periods but of course you might expect that given this has got 24 days of active pills and four dummy pills whereas obviously yasmin is a 21 day active pill preparation so bleeds were shorter and tended to be lighter indeed but as you say much to be expected perhaps for something that lasts 24 days of the cycle rather than exactly and it'd be nice to actually have a comparison between two 24 day cycle pills to see if that they they were actually something uh particular about um zolia whether it's just the 24 versus 21 day cycle system in terms of harms we've we've talked about there's no data yet on vte other ones other harms similar to other contraceptives, presumably? Yes, I think um, things like skin problems, uh, weight gain, were very similar to um, the other pills they compared it to, particularly Yasmin. And if you miss a pill? Well, this, of course, is where things get are complicated. Uh, it has a very complicated regime for missed pills, uh, which depends 
not only when you miss the pill uh, in the day compared to when you should take it, but also which day of the month that you miss the pill. So I think this is a, a major drawback for both um, Zoli and Clara in that they have very complicated missed pill regimes, which, which really it's important that both the clinician and the patient are aware of. Okay, so again, if, if anyone is thinking of prescribing or dispensing, you ought to bone up on what the instructions are so you can adequately describe to the patients. Absolutely right. And I think, you know, this is one of these situations where you're probably going to have to write them down and, and let them make sure the patient's got a, some sort of little note somewhere to remind them what to do. Because we know from all the years and years of evidence that we have for the standard combined oral contraceptive pills that the theoretical safety of these pills and the actual pragmatic practical day in day out safety is different and it's different because of users ability to do things like know what to do when they miss a pill and our second article looks at the use of relvar elliptor uh, this is an inhaler that we featured a couple of months ago when we looked at its use for copd this time we're looking at its use for asthma so a reminder it's a combination inhaler containing uh, inhaled steroid fluticasone furate and a long-acting beta-2 agonist vilanterol triphenotate. There are two different strengths. One contains 92 micrograms of steroid and 22 micrograms of the long-acting beta agonist and the higher strength one is 184 micrograms of steroid and 22 micrograms of the long-acting beta agonist and it's probably just worth having right up front uh, and a description of what the steroid dose is equivalent to. Because according to the manufacturers, and these are obviously going to be approximate figures, but according to the manufacturers, a dose of 92 micrograms per day of fluticasone furate is equivalent to what in terms of standard fluticasone? Well, so this is a once-a-day preparation, remember. So it's a one puff of your lower dose Relvar elliptor is equivalent to having a single puff of fluticasone or flixotide 250 BD, one puff BD. Because remember, flixotide is licensed for twice daily. This is licensed for once daily. So I'm having to read this off my crib sheet because it is quite difficult to get your head around this. So the lower strength, 92 micrograms of Relvar one puff a day is equivalent to one puff twice a day of your fluticasone propionate, your flixotide 250. So your steroid load, if you look at it as a total daily dose, 92 micrograms of fluticasone furate, 500 micrograms fluticasone propionate, and rounding that into or converting it to beclometasone. So that's a thousand micrograms, one milligram of your beclometasone. So it's a big dose. So even the lower strength preparation is a high dose of inhaled steroid. Correct. Okay. So having, having established dose equivalences, what trial data is there? So let's look at compared, because there are some, several comparisons that we look at. So compared with using fluticasone furate alone, there was a benefit in terms of reduced, I think it was a reduced exacerbations. But that's not surprising really, because we know that adding a long-acting beta agonist to a steroid gives you a benefit anyway. 
So comparing fluticasone furorate with the combination, you would expect to see some additional benefit. Yes, and, it, and and this seems to be a common uh, problem we come ag- against with, with drug trials these days, is very often we do find uh, double treatments compared with single. The other one I comes to mind is Dimista for um, hay fever, which is a combined in um, uh, corticosteroid and antihistamine nasal spray. So it's the same sort of problem we have is that we know that uh, double dual treatment is more effective and they go and compare it anyway. So there's enough evidence that we already know in the world of asthma, that, that there is a place for com- for using a long-acting beta agonist and a steroid together. So then there's a comparison with, again, fluticasone furate on its own or fluticasone propionate on its own. And again, not surprisingly, you get the results that you might expect. Perhaps the most interesting comparison is when they looked at it with fluticasone and salmeterol. So getting into a, almost a like-for-like comparison. And in this case no difference between the two drugs or the two combinations of drugs yes and this wasn't a this was one of these randomized double blind double dummy parallel group trials so they were looking at numbers like fev ones and things rather than um anything else and looking at the numbers the numbers were the same between the two groups of patients so their their lung function was improved the same amount in each this wasn't if you're like a a very clinical based trial looking at things like symptoms quality of life or exacerbations and possibly worth reflecting on and we go into this more detail in the article is the baseline characteristics of some of the patients and the steroid dose that they were on to give you an impression of of how representative they are of the sort of population that the drug is licensed in because the drug is actually licensed in the regular treatment of asthma in adults and adolescents aged 12 years and older where use of combination medicinal product is appropriate and it specifically says patients not adequately controlled with inhaled corticosteroids and as needed inhaled short-acting beta agonists, which feels very much early step three of the BTS guidance. Yes, yet of course we just talked about the dose equivalence, and yet this is equivalent to a 1,000 micrograms of beclometasone, which puts you immediately into step four. So there's a funny, it's, it's a little bit unclear... Um, what scenario you might move on to use this drug because if you're stepping up from uh, step two so you're looking to add in a long-acting beta agonist then you can't do it with this this combination inhaler because it's got too high a dose of steroids um, in addition and it's not licensed for use in patients who are already on that combination well that's the difficulty so the other problem you've got is that if you've got someone at step three and you want to step them up to step four to do it for this you're going to have to change their long-acting beta agonist as well as their steroid. So it's going to require a, a change, and, and that may be fine. But if you want to step back down again, you've then got to step back out of using that inhaler to a different one, and, and that's going to perhaps confuse patients, not only on dose regimes and but also on types of inhaler being used. So there's some real practical issues about how you would introduce it, where it fits, and how you would step people up and down Indeed, yeah. use, using it. And then, as we, we highlighted before in the previous article, one or two concerns about appearance and name of product, that it's Relvar, which could be mistaken or misheard as reliever. People have highlighted that this might be a potential problem and people might assume it's a reliever inhaler, which clearly it isn't. Yes, yeah, so the colour of this uh 
new inhaler is blue at least the cap is blue and the label is blue and i think that i don't quite understand why they did this it is a shame because we're going to have a situation now where patients will have perhaps been used to a brown or a reddish or a combination for their preventer inhaler and their bluish reliever and now they've got a a new inhaler called relvar which is also going to be blue. And so potentially they're going to have two blue inhalers by their bed or in their pockets. And I think that's going to make it more difficult for us to talk about, you know, which inhaler they should use when. And I suppose the ultimate question is, is there a place in the market for a once daily uh, combination product for asthma? Um, We are anticipating that some of the existing products will be off patent fairly soon. So the twice-daily, long-established products will be available as generics and price may fall. Quite where this is going to sit or find its place remains to be seen. Yes, yeah, so I think this is, this is you know, I think we so often see this, don't we, as patents start to get towards the end, and we've got a lot of uh, combination inhalers that we use in asthma now getting towards the end of their patent life. We are seeing a lot of other new inhalers being combined together and new chemicals being used in a way of uh, prolonging perhaps the life of um, a a branded inhaler systems. So I think we are going to see a lot of this. We've already seen it in COPD with a real rise, huge rise in the number of different sorts of products that are available. And I think we're going to see the same thing with asthma. And that I think maybe maybe good in some respects. It's good to have a whole range of different types of devices because sometimes people struggle with one particular type when it comes to using them. Uh, but I think it will mean that we'll, as uh, doctors, have to be very careful about how we teach people to use them because sometimes the inspiratory effort is different from one to the other and also how they should be used, you know, whether it's a once-daily regime or a two. And if anyone has any comments or ideas there and where this might fit in please let us know indeed uh, yes as i say cause it is a it is a difficult one i mean of course you know the prices are set in a certain way so there may be some commissioning groups who, who would be looking at this as a way of perhaps of trying to reduce costs but how you do that with its like with its licensing arrangements with its sort of position at step four but within without an ability to step down with it i think does make it a very complicated situation thank you And of course, we're always happy to receive any comments on our articles or podcast. Please email them to dtbeditor at bmj.com. And to read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com.